Good morning. It's primary day uh, in New Hampshire. Tuesday, September the 13th. It's Kale and Company live here on WKXL. 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester and beyond, and streaming around the world and around the clock on nhtalkradio.com. And uh, joining me this morning is Detective Sergeant Dick Peralt from New Hampshire State uh, State Police. And uh, Dick, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Good morning, Ken. Thanks. I appreciate uh, being on. And... uh, Busy guy right now, as as always, uh, and uh, heavily involved in the uh, DARE program, the Drug Abuse Resistance uh, Education program that has been around for quite some time now. And also, Dick, the uh, the big DARE race, uh, of which you are the director, is coming up uh, in the middle of October. Yes, sir. That's going to be on October 15th. And it has returned to Hazen Drive. It has. So this is the 30th anniversary, and uh, the first dare race was held at uh, Hazen Drive at State Police Headquarters. So for the 30th, we have decided to bring it back. Now, it has been, uh, I know, in in previous years at uh, New Hampshire Motor Speedway. It has, yeah, yeah. For for quite a number of years, we've yeah. had it at New Hampshire Motor Speedway. Yep, but now back to Hazen Drive. Yes. So tell us a little bit about the the race itself, and uh, is it, it's a five k. It is a five k, yeah. and it, this is a very family friendly event where it is the 30th anniversary, and we are at State Police Headquarters, we'll be having the specialty units there. So um, we are planning, weather permitting, to have the helicopter there. Uh, we'll have the specialty teams. We'll have the uh, canine. We'll have the SWAT team. We'll have, um, you know, the bomb squad, yeah. things like that. Um, and it's going to be a family-friendly event for all. The uh, There'll also be a uh, kids' fun run. And the kids' fun run, uh, after the kids' fun run or before, uh, there's going to be a pumpkin coloring. Uh, oh, nice. Pumpkin nice. coloring. Event, yeah, so. a couple of weeks away from Halloween. So yes. uh, very appropriate. I know there's going to be a raffle, too. There will be a yeah. raffle. Yes, yeah. we're uh, very fortunate to have multiple vendors or multiple uh, businesses donate, whether it's gift cards or uh, you know gift cards for meals or actually – um, you know, sports, memorabilia, things like that. We've been very fortunate to have uh, lots of members of the community come forward with donations. Now, that is terrific. And um, all the proceeds go to the DARE program? They do. So we, uh, with the New Hampshire State Police, we, we're we essentially in charge of the Northern New England training team. So we train officers all over New England and the country to be DARE officers. And it is a process uh, it's not something you can come to uh, and one day be certified. It, right. it is a lengthy process, and it takes time, preparation, and uh, it takes money to do that. And so we're tasked with that, uh, putting that training together, and, and it's, uh, it's it's really great training. And now, when did you first become involved with D.A.R.E.? Because I know you and, and D.A.R.E. go way back. Yes, yeah, so I first became a D.A.R.E. officer in 2009. And what's, what's actually funny is I remember being hired, and one of the – First people I met was a uh, an officer named Mark Nash, and he ended up retiring as a staff sergeant. But I remember one of the first interactions with him, I was told, hey, he's in charge of D.A.R.E. for New Hampshire. And I remember walking over to him and I said, hey, can you make me a D.A.R.E. officer? Because I've always wanted to do that. And I just remember him chuckling and saying, well, it's a little more of a process than just making you a dare officer tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't really know what that entailed until 2009 when they sent me to the training. Yeah. 
So what does it entail? So it is an 80-hour class. It's two weeks. And what is described, Ken, as by all the officers attending, I would say 90% of them at the end of that will come up to me and say, you know, I've been a police officer for 10 years, 15 years. This is the hardest training I have ever been to. Um, it is a process where we give you guidance and instruction. You'll be on a team um, overseen by a mentor that will mentor you how to be um, a DARE officer. We, we know that these officers are already police officers, mm. but the component, one of the components that police officers don't have is an educational component or being a teacher. So we have educators assigned to us. And, and our educator, Paul Ford, he is a retired principal out of Exeter, New Hampshire, 30-plus years of teaching. He is our educator, and he was Dare America's Educator of the Year in 2016. Wow. So he spends two weeks with us teaching the police officers how to now be teachers in the classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that whole training at the end of that training, it's culminated essentially with the last Thursday putting these officers in schools. We have five schools in the area. We send uh, a group of officers over to each school, assisted by the mentor, and we uh, we literally walk them into a classroom, preferably fourth, fifth, sixth grade classroom. Okay. We open the door, close it behind them, and watch them teach a lesson. And uh, that really is the big payoff for all these officers. And it's the big payoff for us, honestly, Yeah. when we get to watch them interact with the kids. And uh, one of the funniest stories, and if, if I can tell you a quick story. Oh, sure. A couple of years ago, we had a Weymouth, Massachusetts officer come up. And he, <laughs> he was born in Ireland, and he had the thickest Irish accent. <laughs> and he was so nervous that I remember we took – we took the officers over to uh, Pentecook in the school, and I remember him coming to me in the hallway, and he's and he's got the thick Irish accent, and he says, I, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if the kids are going to like me. And I, I looked at him, and I said, Jim, you sound like a big leprechaun. The kids are going to love you. And he went into that classroom, and it was, it was just mind-blowing. I actually had to we only give them about 25 minutes in the classroom. Yeah. 40 minutes later, I had to literally go in and, and pull, drag them, out, huh? pull them away from the kids. Um, <laughs> kids were having a good time. Yeah. He's having a good time. And, and the fun thing for me is I get to stay in touch with all these DARE officers and field questions throughout the year. You know, hey, what is DARE's stance on this? Hey, can I do this in the classroom? Hey, can I do that? So um, that's that's a nice thing for me, too. I, I get to, to really interact with DARE officers all year long. That is that is terrific and uh, so important uh, in today's society for sure. I know that uh, Dare began back in the '80s in in Los Angeles. When did the program get started here in New Hampshire? Can it get started here in the early well, in the late '80s, early '90s? Uh, Dover PD was one of the first agencies to to kind of uh, run with this program in the late '80s. New Hampshire State Police uh, got on board somewhere in the early '90s. And we sent a few troopers out to Illinois to become uh, certified as DARE officers. So right up till about 2016, we had probably three or four uh, troopers in the schools teaching throughout the state. And uh, I was the last one teaching. I, I've been fortunate enough to, to have taught all over the state, you know, whether it's New Boston, Barnstead, Southampton, um, countless schools. I've spent the 10 weeks in the school teaching the program. And... Uh, it, it's a lot of fun for me. 
Is that what it is, a 10-week program? It is. Yeah. When it started back in 1983, it was a 17-week program. Mm -hmm. So they've scaled it back. It's a 10-week program now. However, I will say that it still could possibly be a 17-week program because the core the core 10 weeks each each uh, each lesson is a is a core lesson but there are multiple other supplemental lessons uh, so there's a you know, prescription medication lesson there's a cyberbullying lesson and oftentimes uh, we end up uh, in the school and the teachers say hey listen you know we, we have this particular problem we have kids uh, texting or, or bullying other kids mm-hmm. via cyberbullying do you think we could add that enhancement lesson. So it's not uncommon for the schools to request the officer stay another three, four weeks teaching other lessons. So it, it can be done, and, and we see it all the time. So when it's 10 weeks, is that one lesson of one hour per week, or how does it work? It is one hour per week. So yeah. essentially, if you have a fifth grade class, you know, lesson, lesson uh, so it's Tuesday. So lesson one would be today in this fifth grade class. Right. And you might have three fifth grade classes. So you might teach... Um, you know, lesson one this week for three classes. Mm-hmm. Next week, lesson two for three classes, so right. on and so forth. Um, that's the ideal situation. However, there are you know scenarios where, uh, hey, listen, we have to catch up. We have to make up a snow day. We have to do this. And it's not uncommon for us to teach, you know, lesson one and two in the same week. But ideally, it's it's ten weeks. So, is there interaction between uh, the trooper and and the, and the classroom and the the uh, students in class? Very much so. Yeah. So uh, I know when I taught, and just like uh, you know, all the local officers teaching now, yeah, we uh, we actually become the teachers in the class. So we <laughs> we we take over the class yeah. as the teachers. Most right. of the right. teachers stay in the classroom with us. Uh, however, I have been in schools before where the teacher says, "Hey." I'm uh, I'm gonna go do some paperwork. We'll see you in an hour, <laughs> and so yeah. and that's fine. Yeah. I mean, the the neat thing about going in as a uniformed police officer, and the reason that it was designed this way, is because, you know, the kids from from a young age, they go into a classroom and they see the teachers. We come in, we're in uniform, and it's a different kind of feel. Sure. And so sure. when we interact with the kids, it's just an enhancement on what the teachers have been doing for, you know, years with these kids. And for many, I would think even most, it's probably the first interaction that they've had with a police officer. It is, in a yeah. lot of cases. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Dick Peralta is with us. Uh, Dick is a detective sergeant at New Hampshire State Police and also a coordinator of the DARE program, Drug Abuse Resistance Education. We'll talk more about that and the DARE race. Uh, which is coming up on the 15th of October on Hazen Drive, where State Police Headquarters is located. Right here on Kale and Company Live for a Tuesday. Don't forget to get out and vote today here on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 on the FM dial in the Concord area, 101.9 FM in Manchester, and streaming around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. We will be right back. Welcome back. It's a Tuesday. It's Election Day. Polls in Concord open until uh, 7 o'clock tonight from 7 to 7. Maybe you've already voted, but get out there. We want to see a good turnout on this Election Day. No excuses. Dick Peralta is with us, Detective Sergeant, New Hampshire State Police, DARE coordinator, and also uh, in charge of the big DARE race coming up on October 15th. And I know uh, DARE training is coming up in the not-too-distant future. Yes, yeah, and a lot of officers will be attending. We uh, we will actually. 
They uh, The training is going to be in November 7th through the 18th. Uh, right now, I was told, you know, I have an administrative assistant who takes care of, like, numbers of uh, people signing up, and she is absolutely wonderful. Uh, I'd be lost without her, and I have to mention that. Uh, we, I noticed, uh, she was notified me yesterday that we have 18 officers coming. We typically try and cap it at, last year we had 26 from all over the country. We had people come from California, Pennsylvania. Um, uh, 26 seems to be a good number. We had to actually add another team. Typically, the day of training, we have four teams with four mentors. We had so many last year, I had to add a fifth mentor. And so in that that mentor mentors for the dare program are dare officers with enhanced training they have an additional week of training out of state so um i'm I'm really looking forward to dot or dare officer training number 33 and dare if you're just tuning in is a drug abuse resistance education and uh, it's been in this state for a long time in fact uh, there are some jurisdictions that uh, did not have it uh, in the state, in, in their schools, and uh, nonetheless sent officers to the, to the training because they felt that it made them better officers That's, just going to the D.A.R.E. training. That is 100% yeah. true. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and the nice thing about the D.A.R.E. training is if you have a community outreach program like a lot of police departments do now, the larger police departments, uh, they will send officers for the specific reason that mm-hmm. it makes them a better partnership with the community yeah i mean uh it takes a special person to be a dare officer it takes um uh usually an officer who really wants to do this and what's funny about this ken is i'll see officers come in day one and their attitude day one is like yep my agency sent me so i'm here day 10 when they leave those are the ones that come up to me and say hey listen i came in because my agency sent me here but i would do this a hundred percent of the time over and over again. This is the best thing ever. Wow. Isn't that something? So, that That is something. How has the curriculum changed uh, over the years as far as what you teach uh, in the classroom? I mean, with the introduction, we, we seem to be introduced, unfortunately, to uh, more dangerous drugs all the time, more, more temptation in our society, more bullying, perhaps. How has the curriculum changed over the years? So the curriculum, Ken, went from uh, being more of a uh, just say no to drugs to now it's, it's teaching kids how to make better life choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, using different models and uh, you know training aids like that, we teach the kids how to get away from those situations, how not to get involved, rather than okay, you're already there, uh, just say no. We want them to stay away, and and that's uh, uh, that's that's how Dare has kind of evolved over the years. And of course, uh, with the the internet becoming more prevalent all the time. I mean, that's something that, you know, obviously when I was going to school, for sure, there was no internet, there was no social media, there were no temptations that way. But that certainly has, I I think, uh, increased the temptation for these young students. It has. And and of course, there's other things involved too with that. Now they've got the, uh, you know, you've got social social media stuff, you have the cyber bullying that, that there's a whole lesson on that as well. Um, and you know what's what's really funny, and we do know that the program works, and, and every once in a while you hear somebody say, well, D.A.R.E. doesn't really work. And so my response to that is, hey, listen, if you've got a class of 30 kids and you save one of these kids mm. from ever being involved in drugs, did it work? And overwhelmingly, I think you have to agree that it did. 
And one of the troopers that works in my office with me was a DARE officer and a DARE mentor for the state police for years. And he was telling me a story in the office last week where he was at uh, Dunkin' Donuts a couple of years ago. <laughs> Big surprise, cops and donuts. I know. Yeah. Um, All the cops at the donut shops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a uh, young lady who was working at Dunkin' Donuts. It was the store manager. And she looked at him and said, hey, you are my dare officer. And he said, geez, did you, did you go to school and where? And she said, yeah. She said, I want you to know I never touch drugs. Isn't that and, something? Uh, it was, it was yeah. a cool story. Yeah. So we, we chatted about that for a few minutes. And, yeah. you know, whether that was a direct result of him being in the class, who knows? But he had an impact on her, certainly, because she remembered him after all these years. Well, I'm, I'm sure it has an impact from uh, from day one, moment one, when uh, an officer walks into a classroom. And uh, as we mentioned before, probably the first interaction that most of the students, when, when do you start in the fifth grade? The uh, sweet spot for dare is fifth and sixth grade. Yeah, that is, uh, you know, we we have taught it in fourth grade. Yeah, um, we, it it goes right up from kindergarten through high school. There's a high school curriculum. There is an elementary school curriculum. There is a kindergarten program. Sweet spot typically fifth and sixth grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but the dare officers in the schools make an attempt all the time to get into the kindergarten classes. You know, and kind of make a contact with those kids, and you know, you know, we've got these big flashcards, and and the officers go in and read to the kids, and it's just such a big hit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and again, I mean, just that aura of a uh, police officer walking into your classroom uh, would really, I mean, it, it never happened uh, when I was in school, uh, and and uh, <laughs> I know <laughs> probably probably should have, uh, but but it it, it gives it it uh, you know takes away that that fear I think that some you know youngsters may have of. A police officer. It does. You know, and and teaches them they're just regular people, too. It does. Yeah. And and the cool thing for us here in New Hampshire, uh, and, I, and I left this out previously, but, you know, obviously, Dare America has several regional directors across the country. And fortunately for us here in New Hampshire, I'm very close to the regional director who lives in Virginia, but his family owns uh, an amusement park in northern New Hampshire. Uh-huh. And so yeah. he is here all the time. So we have a very strong connection with Dare America. And, and the nice thing about that connection is anytime I've called him for anything, whether it's guidance on a situation or, you know, maybe we need uh, extra supplies. I mean, he always answers the phone for me. And, you know, within, within a day or two, I have supplies, whatever we need. So we have a very unique connection to Dare America. How is the, you know, at one time, and I don't know, maybe it's still true, uh, New Hampshire had, uh, you know, as, as large a, a drug problem a problem as any state uh, in the country. Is that still the case? You know, I think it probably is. Um, you know, per capita, I would say that that's not inaccurate. And the only thing I can say about that is I, I understand that we all have a, you know, every state has um, – you know, chemical uh, abuse problems, but mm. or substance abuse, yeah. abuse problems, but you have to do something. Yeah, and whatever prevention program you can get in, and and I would never be, um, you know, anyone to shoot down a prevention program. I will say that Dare is, in my opinion, the most successful because it's been around the longest. It is, um, you know, time and tested. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a prevention program in the school, it's better than not having one. Oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. We have to do and, something. And, and as you said, if you can, you know, help one student stay away from whether it be alcohol or, or drugs, you're doing your job. And I'm sure, you know, it's it's a lot more than, than one student in every classroom as well. You do uh, remarkable work, but there are so many temptations out there these days, there and the, the fentanyl is getting into the state, and uh, every state. It's just, uh, it seems to be out of control. And the unique thing for New Hampshire is, and the local agencies, the, the agencies in New Hampshire, the training for them to send a DARE officer, there's no cost. We actually provide all the materials for all the kids in, in the classes. Wow. So, you know, when you have a DARE officer, for example, I, I used Dover a lot because they have a big DARE mm-hmm. program. When they call up and say, hey, we've got a new fifth grade class starting, we need 75 workbooks, yeah. they don't pay for those. We we supply yeah. those. And that's that's one of the reasons that, you, you know, we hold the race and people donate to this. Uh, the Masons, for example, uh, the Freemasons in New Hampshire, yeah. huge donators to, to our program. Oh. And... You know, we use that money that they donate to us every year to build up our supply of workbooks so that when the DARE training kicks off, right. these agencies say, hey, I need 150 books, I need 30 books. Uh, we provide those. Oh. The only downfall to agency sending officers now, obviously, every agency in the state has a shortage of officers. Yeah. So what happens typically now is, hey, listen, you know, we, we, you know, we used to have 15 officers, now we have seven. We, we we you know we need them on patrol. We need yeah. to, but uh, it's too bad because we really need these officers in the school. Dick, how can people get more information about uh, Dare and the Dare race? They can go to the New Hampshire State Police website. That's got uh, a whole drop down on the Dare program that that we uh, oversee, and Facebook. We'll tell you all about the Dare race happening October 15th, State Police Headquarters, all kinds of fun stuff going on that day. All right, Dick Peralt, staff, uh, I should say, uh, Detective Sergeant at uh, New Hampshire State Police and Director of the D.A.R.E. Program and the D.A.R.E. Race. You're a busy guy. You've got a lot on your plate, Dick. A little bit. <laughs> but uh, great to have you with us as always. And we'll, we'll get you back as a reminder before October 15th so awesome. people can uh, get involved if they happen to miss this show. Perfect. Shame on them, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> but Dick, thanks a lot. Coming up, we'll have more Kale & Company live here on WKXL. 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester and beyond. News and talk around the clock right here at WKXLNHtalkradio.com. We'll be right back. It is Kale and Company Live. It's Election Day, Primary Day in New Hampshire. Polls are open until at least 7 o'clock. Throughout the sound of my voice, here at WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester and beyond, and streaming around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. I guess uh, Troopers is the theme today on Kale & Company. We just had a state trooper in, Dick Peralt, from uh, New Hampshire State Police, but now a, a different kind of trooper uh, we're going to talk about with Stephen Guinan, who is the author of the just-released book, We Are the Troopers, the women of the winningest team in pro football history. Yes, you heard that right, the women of the winningest team in pro football history. And Stephen, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Ken. A native of uh, Toledo, Ohio, home of the walleye and the mud hens. Correct. <laughs> That's what I know about Toledo. Holy Toledo. And I never heard of uh, 
never heard of uh, the troopers until I, you know, was familiar with your book. So uh, tell us about the Toledo troopers and uh, when the troopers were first on your radar. Sure. Well, uh, I grew up in Toledo and uh, came of age uh, watching my dad root for his sports teams and reading the Toledo Blade, which was, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the media bar none in Toledo. And there was this team called the Troopers that got a lot of coverage. And they were the winning, they were the best team in, in, their, in their field, in their league. They were, the, you know, the champions, you know, six, seven times over. And so they just were in my consciousness until the league folded and disappeared in 79 and they were gone. And by chance, years later, I met uh, the coach's son and then through him got to meet some, got to meet the coach. And, and, and it was always for me, it was always like, what was that? What was, what was that, that time, that era? Who was that team? And, and just through, uh, you know, this, through the research and through meeting, you know, dozens and dozens of players. Uh, and interviewing them, uh, you know, I, I kind of brought the story out, and uh, it, it's really it's a great sports story. It's a great untold uh, sports history. And uh, yes, they were women, and they were playing good old fashioned American football, and they were really good at it. Now, this wasn't touch football. This wasn't uh, powder puff football. I mean, this was football just the way the men were playing it. That's correct. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't flag football. It was uh, right. it was eleven on eleven. Uh, you know, uh, pads, helmets, the whole the whole deal. There were there were two you know slightly different rule changes from the from the men's game, namely about extra points, and uh, you would get two points for uh, kicking it through the the, uh, the goalpost, whereas you would get one point for running it across the line. Uh, but that was it. You know, that was that was pretty much it. There was uh, you know. These women uh, kind of uh, were inspired by the call to play. They'd always wanted to play sports. They didn't really have a lot of opportunities in the 60s and 70s. Title IX is taking shape as a backdrop and other kind of advancements for other opportunities for women is sort of the backdrop of the story. Yet these women, I don't think, saw themselves as, uh, you know, as really making a political statement as much as they were making really a, a sports statement. They wanted to play football, and they, they found great success, and uh, there's nothing like taping up and, and, and walking out on, on the gridiron and, and, and pads and referees whistle and, and really, you know, knocking your opponent out, and that's, that's how they played, and, and uh, you know, their record shows. So how did the league itself uh, come about? It was founded in the late 60s by a Cleveland promoter by the name of Sid Friedman. He was, uh, you know, kind of a beauty pageant promoter. He, he would, his view was more of the powder puff type of game. Uh, he thought he could, you know, attract audiences and, and fill seats, which was sort of the goal of a lot of impresarios and, and sports team owners. It was, we saw the rise of the, the NFL after the merger. You saw the World Football League. You saw... The Continental Football League. A lot of people don't remember that one, mm. and and so here was the here was his vision of a, a women's professional football league. You know, he thought you you were basically cutting off half the market if by not including women. Well, and very true, uh, I guess. The, yeah. <laughs> and and but over time, uh, you know, he he, he uh, recruited a, uh, created a team in Toledo, and this team in Toledo didn't see it as a powder puff. They saw it as a, as a legitimate sport, and they played it that way. And so in 1974, the league split 
attention to Bill Stout's vision, which was the uh, the National Women's Football League. And so you had a little bit of a, a rift there, and the NWFL, you know, brought teams together from Oklahoma to Dallas, Los Angeles, um, New York, Philadelphia, Detroit, Columbus. Uh, so it, it tried to go, you know, national, uh, uh, you know, tried to grow from a regional kind of Ohio-based sport to, to national. And, and they played all over the country, uh, it turns out. Um, yeah, so there was quite a bit of uh, travel involved. It wasn't just uh, Toledo and vicinity. It was uh, pretty much all over the country. So uh, I, I, in, in living in New England at, at that time from uh, 74 through 79 or 71 through 79, I, I never really heard about the league. I was totally unaware of it. I didn't know anything well, about it. Right. It was, uh, you know, like I said, that there was a number of different leagues kind of sprouting up and, and vying for attention. And the National Women's Football League really existed for those that, that really six-year span from 74 through 79, uh, as well as the prior in iteration of the league and Sid Friedman's uh, for a few years. So. Um, I, they did not play a Boston team. There, there was there was not, to my research, uh, uh, findings uh, a team in that area. They did play a New York Met, a New York team called the New York Pets. Uh, they played Oklahoma City. They played in Texas Stadium in in one of their championship games in 1973, right at right after it had opened. So there was a real push among the ownership to really unite uh, a, a kind of a national you know, National League for women playing football. Men who, men who believed that this was a legitimate, viable sport. So you took a, a particular uh, interest in it. Uh, you know, you, you noticed that it, it disappeared after uh, 1979, but, uh, but you continued to uh, pursue you know, the story of this league because it is a, a fascinating story. I mean, it truly is. Where did the players come from i mean you know there's no no college football uh, for women there's no high school football for women uh so or pop warner uh, uh you know then anyway maybe there is now uh but uh, so so where did the women come from who participated mm-hmm. well in many ways there wasn't anything for women there's really right. no one yeah. graduated from high school uh, and you played your, you know, GAA, your Girls Athletic Association sport activities. <clears throat> you were done. You know, maybe you would play softball at night. You know, in the in the in the community rec leagues, but that was it. Uh, yet these these women, and they kind of span the spectrum. There was one outstanding high school student who kind of joined the team. Uh, you know, when they first started, there was housewives. You know, beauty uh, beauticians. Uh, you had factory workers. You know, it kind of it kind of spanned the spectrum of, of the you know what uh, the background of some of these players, except that they just loved hitting and they loved getting after it. And when they heard that they were going to be you know taping up and putting on you know helmets and shoulder pads and and hitting each other, it just it, it, I think it, it really you know inspired them. They were like, okay, let's go. That was like something they always wanted to do. Uh, Lee Holler, who I you know write about, was one of the great uh she was a quarterback of the team and it's just something she'd always said i've always wanted to be a football player and she grew up with with three sisters and uh she just was uh you know she wanted to hit on she didn't want to wear dresses and and uh you know and and you know get married she wanted to go go play football so there were you know uh, that was just one example of of the type of uh of player who who kind of answered the call and and um you know to 
in, in, in all cases that I, that I, that I've researched and come across, the women speak about their time as football players with this sort of teary eyed reverence. Yeah. They loved it. And it was like one of the greatest things they've ever done. They found real kind of transcendent meaning and being on a team, you know, they'd never been on a team. Right. Any uh, kind of team. Played, okay. Yeah. Right. And here they are and, and they're suiting up and, you know, their bodies are on the line and the game is on the line and it's a, it's a you know, it's a hard nosed game and, and, and they love it. And they were very successful. Stephen, can you uh, hang on for a couple of minutes? We have to take a quick break here. Sure thing. Lo- sure love thing. to talk more about the book, We Are the Troopers, the women of the winningest team in pro football history. And that's no exaggeration. We'll tell you why. Coming up after the break here, Kale and Company live on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester, and streaming around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. Don't you dare touch that dial. Kale and Company live here on Primary Day on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. We're joined by Stephen Guinan, author of the brand new book just out, We Are the Troopers, the women of the winningest team in pro football history. And that is true, Stephen. What what a record uh, they amassed o- over the years that they played. That's right. Um, you know, uh, I, I mentioned Bill Stout. He was the, the coach and owner of the Toledo Troopers, and he, he was kind of a, a washed-up football star himself. I think who had seen many of his old teammates uh, find success in if not the pro game, then, you know, college-level coaching and, and, and made football a career. And so when he took the job, he, he wanted to, you know, turn his team into a champion. And I think the players give him a lot of credit and his coaches, uh, as other coaches, to, to making the team ready to play and conditioning and, and mentally tough. And so uh, that led to, I think, their incredible record. He was 46-1 and as a coach. And then, uh, as you know, the two years he was uh, commissioner of the league, they went thirteen and four. So you combine that together, and it's a it's a pretty impressive record. But um, you know, I think I think the credit, according to a lot of the players, goes to you know the coaches who who really you know uh, uh, you know inspire them to 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 play the game you know at that level. And they they would be ahead by you know three four touchdowns and still. Uh, you know, with their foot on the gas, they they would uh, you know play to the very you know play hard to the last whistle. And seven consecutive world championships. That's that's pretty amazing, uh, right there. Yeah, well, you know, the league was as it was kind of forming early. You know, there were only like a handful of teams, and maybe I think the first year they played five games, and then they you know then it kind of ascended with the National Women's Football League, and and uh, they played ten or twelve games a year. Uh, for that, you know, during that period, they probably, you know, reached their, 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 their probably the, the golden era in the, you know, 75 to 77. That was when, you know, they had some really terrific uh, games against rival teams that were kind of emerging, like Oklahoma City had a great team and, and a great, uh, uh, you know, program there, a great, you know, uh, organization that, that really, you know, gave Toledo all they could handle in, in a few really noteworthy championship games. So, you know, researching the story and, and and talking to some of the players, you know, you realize, like I said, it, it you know it meant a lot to these women to play, just like it would for for, for 
from men to who won Super Bowls in 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 the seventies, but also uh, you know finding out these these incredible rivalries and these incredible human stories that you know that that you know many of the the players you know carry and, and carry close to them. So it's been it's been a joy to kind of kind of rediscover those storylines. Now, do these women? I mean, uh, very successful, and uh, there there must have been a whole lot of uh, coaching that had to be done by Mister Stout and uh, and his assistants at at the time, because these women uh, never played uh, sports, let alone football, and there had to be a whole lot of uh, coaching uh, that that went on uh, before they mm-hmm. actually took the field. Yeah, I think there. The, uh, According to their, you know, their their plan was to uh, to become, you know, supremely conditioned. So practice always started and ended with running and drills and pop ups and calisthenics. You know, it was it was a it was kind of a meat grinder practice. You know, one of the players told me, you know, games were easy. It was practice that was hard. You know, they they would they would go into games and be and be you know more prepared to play physically, but also mentally. You know, they 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 did a lot of hitting. And getting ready, and and that's an important part of the game to learn how to hit for your own protection, and and uh, and uh, and and to you know to perform and you know these maneuvers that 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 great football players you know are accustomed to playing, and the kind of play we see on Sundays. They were they were you know using those techniques. And what was their home field? Where did they play their home games? So their home field for the latter half of their of their existence was Waite Stadium, uh, this, you know, venerated, uh, you know, 1940s built high schools, one of the, one of the six, you know, original high schools in Toledo. And, you know, it's overlooking, you know, it's on the other side of the river overlooking downtown. It's, it's one of those old, beautiful, uh, you know, depression era built high schools with three floors and kind of like a, a Roman Coliseum style stadium. Uh, and so it, it was kind of the cream of the crop of Toledo venues, and they played their home games there under the lights. You know, often that was that was you know while while high school games often took place in the '60s, actually during on Saturday afternoons. Yeah, uh, they uh, they were playing at night, and and after that, in some ways, they uh, you know they they changed the you know some of the some of the, the boys teams and the high school teams realized that. Hey, there's a good audience to be made playing at night, and and while the troopers were playing, you know, Toledo High School changed the rules to allow boys to play at night because women could. So um, that sort of re re um, reinvented Friday Night Lights after the troopers were playing under the lights. Yeah. So uh, were these women uh, paid to play? Well, the. So the original plan was to sort of uh, it was sort of a barnstorming operation where they would you would, they would publicize an event on on short notice and and see how many you know people they could attract and and then split the box office. So it depended on how many people they got to show up uh, to games, and sometimes they would get paid several weeks later, perhaps twenty five dollars, uh, perhaps nothing. So it was you know that's not why they were doing it. Uh, they, you know, but still, they were, they were, you know, they paid their way. In many cases, uh, they paid, you know, for their own, for their own, you know, particular equipment. There was no such, there was no um, budget for, you know, personal equipment that you might add on to what you have. So they would, you know, like, like players today, I guess, would, you know, add to their their basic their their baseline of of pads and protections a whole 
you know, locker full of other types of, uh, you know, protective equipment that they would bring and add to it. So they, they uh, you know, they financed themselves uh, their, you know, their play. And um, they didn't really regret it either. It's not like they were, they were um, you know, they were not, they, were, they weren't complaining about it. Although, sure, they would roll their eyes when they saw what men could play or men could make. Yeah. And, and that, that was a bitter pill. But here they were. You know, on Saturdays and uh, Saturday nights, ready to play. So they they didn't quit their day jobs. In other words, that's that's correct. <laughs> right, 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 right. So so did these women? Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, very successful in, in what they were doing with the championships they won. Uh, did they become uh, sort of celebrities in the Toledo area? Well, I would point to one, and, uh, you know, you may have even seen her or heard her name. That was Linda Jefferson. You know, she was just outstanding track athlete from Libby High School. Uh, and, and, you know, like I said, for her, after high school, that was the end of your sports career. And she, But when she went out for football, she found out that she loved it, and she was really good at it. Uh, and that's an understatement to see her play. It's kind of iPod, like it's, it's jaw dropping. She's an incredible athlete and was, you know, people call her the, who see her now is call her like the Barry Sanders of women's football, maybe the Walter wow. Payton of women's football, just yeah. an incredible athlete who could, you know, who, you know, was very difficult to stop a home run threat every time she touched the ball. And she did, you know, she was somewhat of a celebrity. She was on, uh, you know, women's Billie Jean King Women's Sport Magazine, first af- uh, female athlete of the year. She competed in the Superstars. You remember that show from the sure, 70s? Sure, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah. She competed against, you know, Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova and her idol, Althea Gibson. So, you know, here was this kid from Toledo competing on, you know, on national level against the greatest women athletes, you know, that they could find and winning. You know, she, she you know, she perhaps would have won the whole thing if not for a, a fault in the obstacle course. So, you know, among all the things that, that she had to do. So she was just an incredible athlete. And, you know, people would come up to her on the street and get her autograph. She was one of those players who, you know, after the game would be signing autographs to all her fans, uh, you know, as the stadium cleared out. So um, definitely a, a celebrity caliber there. Uh, it's a it's a fascinating story, and it, it really and truly is because I, I'm sure it, uh, uh, you know, people most people are unaware that there even was a, a women's professional league at one time. Uh, so any any plans, Stephen, to make this into a major motion picture like uh, like a league of their own, something like that? Well, I mean, look, look I mean, you know. It kind of has that written all over it. You know, you have 70s, a period piece. You've got women playing football. You've got these incredible characters. So, you know, sure. Uh, actually, you know, it started with a, a screenplay, and, and then and then it became a book, and, and uh, perhaps something else. That's kind of out of my hands. You know, I'm not a, not a producer. Uh, I, my, my, uh, my goal was to honor what they did by telling the story and, and getting it out there and and so whatever happens after that, it's, uh, you know, sure, I, that would be wonderful. But, you know, I hope readers find uh, find uh, the, the book compelling and, and you know, uh, 
informative and and entertaining so well no doubt about that and again uh, the book is we are the troopers the women of the winningest team in pro football history and they they were uh, actually honored as such correct right uh uh in the 1981 uh, they brought a bunch of their memorabilia a lot of their records various things and they they they, they create a uh, they created like a diorama, a display at the national, at the NFL Hall of Fame in Canton, and you know it was sort of a curiosity at the time. As uh, in some ways it is now, although now you have national uh, national leagues like the Women's Football Alliance and, and the Boston Renegades. Maybe your your listeners know about them. Yeah. Um, and, and but then it was this: hey, there's this obscure, untold history happening right here in Ohio. So they were recognized as the winningest team in a display at the Hall of Fame. And they've also been inducted, the Troopers have been inducted to the Women's Football uh, Federation, one of the, one, another league that, that, that kind of is existence, that's in existence now, um, into their Hall of Fame as well. So I think, you know, the more we kind of research the story and le- hear about them, you know, you know I think the people really want to appreciate what they, what they did. Bill Stout, we appreciate what you did. It's a great read, and uh, thank you for, uh, I should say, Stephen Guinan. I had Bill Stout written down here. Stephen Guinan, author of the book, just released, We Are the Troopers, the Women of the Winningest Team in Pro Football History. Stephen, thanks for being with us this morning. We appreciate it. Thanks so, thanks so much for having me. All right. It was a pleasure. And that'll do it for this edition of Kale & Company. Don't forget to get out and vote. And if you missed any of the show, we'll play it for you again just after 7 o'clock tonight right here on WKXL and nhtalkradio.com.